to welcome Roger Lancer to Chatting with Sherry. He's an award-winning cinematographer. Uh, he has done movies, TV, of all different kinds, uh, all over the place. He's a traveling man. Uh, he and his wife, who's a, a makeup artist, have worked on a lot of great stuff. We're going to talk about all this. Uh, he's worked w on some amazing sets with some amazing people. Um, but he's best known for Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries. He did both the TV series and the movie, Miss Fisher and the Crypt of Tears. We're going to talk about that, too. Um, it's really a fun chat. Here's Roger. Hi, Roger. Welcome to the show. Uh, hi, Sherry. How are you? I'm fine. How you doing? I'm okay. It's a warm, hot, sunny winter day down here in Sydney, Australia. <laughs> It's a warm, hot summer day here in San Diego. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost seven. It's eighty-one. So, yeah. Wowie. And I'm that's Fahrenheit. I never could figure out Celsius. <sighs> no, there we. When this country went over to that metric system, we were there was some way to work it out about uh, uh, for us to convert back was something like you doubled it and had 32 you know there was one of those sort of school rules of thumb but I, I i can't do it the other way you know i can't i can't convert fahrenheit to celsius but i can convert celsius to fahrenheit oh that's interesting that you can do it the other way yeah so i can get a rough idea but uh it's the same it's the same in england i think they're still um because they invented the imperial system i guess Mm. You know, their their road signs like America are still in miles an hour where we're in kilometers an hour, which is uh, slower. Yeah. So 60, 60 kilometers, I think, very, it's not 60 miles an hour. And uh, so. I, I, that's not, I, it's weird. I mean, they tried to teach us that when we were in school. When I was in high school, they tried to switch everybody. Yes. And I I remember uh, when I I was a kid, my father would look at the two signs because there was like a thing for um, for what do you call it? Um, uh, for kilometers? No, for the gas no. when you were at the gas oh, yes. pump. I forgot right. what they call it. Leaders. 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 Yeah. Leaders and 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 instead of gallons and and he would look at it and he would say I don't get it <laughs> and my father was really smart and he didn't yes. get it either <laughs> no it's, it's it took us a while i forget i think it was 64 i think here when we started to switch and um it was a challenge mainly for older people 
everybody, once you got it, you went, oh my God, everything's just multiples of one or 10, you know, because we were still, we our currency, we had ridiculous things called uh, like a guinea, you know, which was, uh, you know, the equivalent of like a dollar 25, mm-hmm. you know, there was all these different words, plus all the measurements that were, I think one of them was even based on the length of a cricket pitch. <laughs> like um, <laughs> it was a, it's called a link or a chain. You know, oh, how big's your uh, ranch? Oh, it's uh, four chains by three links. You know, that's all to do a distance of a physical thing. So, so it was a good thing we came across because it's so much easier now. Oh, I'm, I'm sure. I just, I, it's really funny because the. Um it's it's like the old Roman thing that uh, mm. a foot is based on a man's foot. That's that's, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Incredible. And, and there was like um, a ped or something, which is like the the pad of a man's foot, and it was like really Gee. weird things that they yes, did yes. back then um, to measure. Um, you, you would figure out a road that way. It's, it's, I I mean, I guess they did it because the Romans did the roads across the, all of Europe, so... I know, yeah, well, that's exactly <laughs> right. And, fil- and film, relating to film, it was the same. That a big roll of 35mm film uh, was always a 1,000 feet, mm-hmm. which, which ran for nine minutes in a camera. So it wasn't until I did work in England or in Greece or somewhere like that, and the the um, labelling on the cans were in metres, you know, and it's sort of, you sort of go, oh, hang on a minute, of course they would they wouldn't be using uh, you know old fashioned uh, measurements uh, because the I think some of the film was manufactured by Kodak in Europe. Oh, well, that yeah. makes sense. So they. They did it toward their uh, market that they were selling yeah, it to. Yeah, that's right. So if you were making a French film, they'd probably go, oh, je vais monter j'ai rien, I need uh, 4,000 meters of film, you know. <laughs> uh, but of course, of course. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. That that, that yep. does. Because um, I, I think you have to, like, you have to switch reels um, yes. at a certain point. So instead of in feet, they did it in meters when when they went to Europe and stuff. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. But, and that's one of the things now. Uh, still, a lot of cinematographers and you know directors of any worth um, still like to shoot on film because it has uh, an an aesthetic and a quality that they still like. Mm-hmm. And even though films still get converted from the celluloid to a digital medium to be edited and transferred and usually uh, shown in cinemas, um, they still shoot on film because they like the aesthetic appeal. And I think possibly West Side Story, the Spielberg one, I think that was film. I think June was film. And, um, but the other thing that, um, Actors who are working in films now, who have worked in the film age, say they miss with the digital cap- capture is 
that very thing where they'd have to stop and change the role of film, mm-hmm. where, you, where you'd have a break for a few minutes while that was done. And, you know, people could talk and stuff when now it's, it's almost endless. You know, there is no end. And that, that small ceremonial of event of changing a role of film doesn't happen anymore. So they just keep going. I heard that um, uh, Scorsese was like that because he, he, you know, he was, he's a great film historian as well as a great director. And he just, he doesn't see how, digital will be able to be stored that's the problem yeah um and that's his worry and and that's why probably uh all the people who were friends and came through with him like spielberg and lucas and people like that still do film Mm. well i think his example is well for sure we know it lasts a hundred years because Everything that's, you know, the Lumiere brothers, the first cinematographers and um, uh, all those early films have lasted. The celluloid has been able to have been copied and kept and things like that, where digital, who knows what new medium is coming, you know? And you you can store it on hard drives now, but what's going to happen in 20 years' time? You know, we might, might be storing it in glass tubes or something i don't know it's just i think he pushes the the capture it on film and store it a store it as a historical document on film type thing as well yeah i mean and like he's sort of i i saw uh i like i like to listen to him because he's he's so knowledgeable uh yes and he, was, and, he does, and he doesn't talk very fast, does he? No, I love that too. Yeah, he's very clear and he explains everything. Yes. Um, uh, Tarantino is the same, but he talks too fast. Yes, he uh, <laughs> he's very knowledgeable. He he ha, he he is a historian as well, but yes, sometimes yes. I don't understand what he's saying because he's going. I know. I know. He's everything all at the same time. It is interesting, though. Well, yes. But, um, no, what I was going to say is Scorsese um, kind of compared it to nitrate film because nitrate was so dangerous and, and it basically right. dissolved and stuff. And he said, we lost all those films, the ones that AFI wasn't able to save. They were, they're yep. all gone yep. forever. And he goes, that's what his worry is, is that yes. if we do everything digital, it'll be like having nitrate all over again and it'll just disappear. Yep. It's not going to be as dangerous. Nobody's going to blow up from it like no. nitrate, but it's it just will disintegrate and go away. Yeah, no, it's that, it's that passion that you need people with that sort of passion, you know, to point out the the archival merits of keeping the medium alive, you know, because of that very thing and not just be dismissive uh, of old films, you know? Exactly. Uh, exactly. And, it's, and and film is such a beautiful medium. I mean, it's so yes. amazing what what we've captured in a hundred mm. years. Mm. Ah, it's amazing. Now, I'm, I, I'm curious, how did you, what was your um, route to 
becoming a cinematographer. I've 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 seen a lot of documentaries about other like James Howe and people yes. like that. So I'm just curious, what was your route? Because everybody seems to have a different one. <laughs> they do. I guess it was just um, the the shorter version is turning a hobby into a career. Uh huh. I. Uh, yeah, hobby. My I, I lost my father when I was fourteen. My mother and my older brother put me straight into an apprenticeship at a at a car workshop, and I learned how to ride a motorbike. I joined a motorcycle club, and uh, <clears throat> at that point, I was getting interested in photography. So I had a, a 35mm stills camera and a zoom lens and used to take photos of um, the other guys in the motorcycle club uh, racing circuit, you know, that sort of rough dirt track stuff, you know, which can be quite visual, there's, you know, dust and dirt and guys and helmets and, and everybody liked my photographs and I was still working as a motor mechanic. And then I started shooting Super 8 film and editing by hand you know the little turn the wheels and the little 50 mil film would go through and my other passion was going to the cinema and I used mm -hmm. to go on my own because it was hard to get uh, friends to come but also at that age of you know 17 uh, 19 you know films back in the day stayed in cinemas for so long mm -hmm. you know yeah. You know, I remember Ryan's daughter, the David Lean film, running for a year. In well, that's one a long time. Wow, but a they, year. Yeah, so it was it was back in the day when they made a big deal about films, you know, like exclusively in one cinema, you know. <laughs> so it was before broad, very broad distribu distribution, where that's where, of course, now they make all the money, but. Um, yeah, so I could see, I did see quite a few films twice. So it was sort of a, a forced education, and plus the the ratings were different here. I think they just had, I think it was uh, like G rating for general viewing, and then I think there was an M for mature. But we didn't get into, I think it was uh, adults only was the next one, but they were never... They never police my age. I got to see um, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, uh, you know, a lot of uh, horror films and things like that that I possibly wouldn't have been allowed to go um, uh, had I, you know, been with a parent or something like that. But uh, so I, that was that part of it. I loved watching films as a, as a pastime and I took photos. I shared uh, an apartment with a single mum now because her husband had died, brother had moved out. She possibly saw my passion and encouraged me to start a like a, a community college course in um, film history and appreciation and cinematography. I did that for one year. I made a short film with a friend, with some friends from the class. And the following year, I found employment in uh, our national broadcaster, ABC Television, and um, started as a camera assistant in 1976. Wow. 
Yeah. So that's that's cool that she went right into that. That's so unusual. It's it's, it's hard to get into that here in the U.S. Yeah. <laughs> it's a. It was a. Once again, it's a whole. It was a whole different journey. There was. Um, <clears throat> you know, uh, when I talk to students, film students now, my path doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> you know, yeah. you can't do what I did. When people say, "How did you do it?" You know, because there's so many film schools either privately run or run by state governments or whatever where people can feel they've paid a lot of money done a year or maybe two and then they think they're qualified in that role where I think particularly film crew work is more you know it's more a hands-on you need to work in the collaborative world that is filmmaking to understand how it's how it how it works mm -hmm. uh, you know the you need to have people skills and compassion and you know be prepared to take a few slings and arrows and uh, all those sorts of things where um, so I spent a lot of time as a camera assistant and then I became a camera operator which is a position on the crew where you're working with the director and the actors more and the director of photography is staging all the lighting and uh, camera movements and um, then after that I got a break and was sent to a small island called Western Samoa. I think there's an American Samoa island nearby. Yeah. And I had to go and do film work there on my own for a production company and it was, uh, that's where I got some skills. I came back uh, and then left, left that television company in the early 80s and went on to the remake of the Mission Impossible television series which they did here in Australia hmm. and uh, and that was my first foray into freelance cinematography but in the 80s when I was working uh, in television uh, that's where I came across uh, English writer, director and actor Kenneth Branagh when he was a young guy and we became friends and um, that's how that relationship started so when he he directed a couple of films and he'd been in lots of plays he asked me to come to England and uh, be the director of photography on this film he was doing called Peter's Friends and that was my first full credit as a director of photography. I just saw it again last. I've seen it before, but I saw it again it's last It's fun, time. isn't it? It is so much fun. I forgot. I've been, I think, about, it must have been about 20 years since the last time I saw it. Yeah. It was, yeah. it's, 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 it, the cast is amazing. Yes. Yeah, it was great. And it's, it's so well done. Um, it, it, it's hard to believe, is that Kenneth's, like, third film or something? <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. Yes. Yes, it was. He did uh, his breakout film was Henry V, which he got uh, two Oscar noms for for acting and directing. Uh, Dead Again, mm -hmm. he played two characters, and uh, his wife then uh, Emma Thompson played two characters like split personality people. And then, and then it was Peter's friend. So, um, you know, and uh, the a bit of trivia about the location that big house that's in the film, the room where the dinner parties, the two dinner parties are, that's a big room 
that's used in The Crown. Oh. Be watched, yeah, so whenever she meets a prime minister, you know, those all those conversations she has with the prime ministers on once a week or whatever in the show are in that room, and the, the, that production company used that house, which is called Rotham Park, which is only only like an hour out of London. It's not a long way. But it gets used all the time in loads and loads of um, films because the family who own the house, they just live in, you know, the east wing of the house, you know, the the 10 or 20 rooms that are on the east wing, and they, they uh, let film crews into the rest of it. Wow. You know the coolest room to me is the library when she comes in through the door, which is all books. Yes. And she sneaks in to... Yes, isn't that great? And that is the coolest room, and then later Tennis comes in to get a drink yes. and sneak That's a drink. Right. And it, oh, that is the coolest room in the whole house, I think. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, I think it was only featured in the film uh, right at the beginning when Stephen's putting the... <clears throat> lights up on the Christmas tree and he gets the idea of having a party mm-hmm. so we didn't we didn't really exploit it but I, a, a funny a funny story when you're making a film uh, before you you know roll cameras you've got to go and find locations and that's called location scouting and uh, you know I as we approached Rotham Park you know it was like that shot of Rita in the movie where she takes her sunglasses and takes her sunglasses off and goes, what the hell? You know, <laughs> I, I was driving down the drive just like that going, what's this? You know, like, because I'd read the script, but I had never imagined, imagined that. So here's sort of a bit of a uncouth, you know, uh, Aussie guy walking, you know, we get out, we're looking at the grounds and then say, okay, we'll go inside. And I'm still, oh, wow, look at this, this is unreal, this is fantastic. So most of these big homes in England have a, uh, a manager, you know, somebody who runs the estate. And uh, they're the sort of people that take you around and show you where you can film and where you can't film. And so I came, came into the foyer of that, uh, which I don't think is featured in the film, but I came into the foyer and went, oh, my God. I'm looking up at the ceiling and I take my shoulder bag off and put it on the table, which is a big circular marble table in the middle of the foyer. Oh and I'm God. going, wow, this is fantastic. And this guy who's the building manager or whatever just comes up and just pushed my bag straight off the table and said, that's Napoleon's campaign table. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, wow. So the, pers- the family's history was... Um, not only with the the Royal Navy, but with uh, um, Wellington, who defeated Napoleon, you know. So they'd captured this table, and I looked at it, and it's got, you know, the legs are four carved uh, dolphins in marble, and uh, the top is this slab, you know, this beautiful brown, uh, you know, marble that um, he evidently dragged this thing around, and that was his campaign table. So it was, uh, you know... I, tr- I, I tread lightly for the rest of the rest of that journey, but it was a funny story. It's interesting because I thought that King George the Fourth had that table. So is this like an, another table? Was this like there are two Wellington tables? Well, I, I this this was told to me by the guy, and it was certain the house was certainly filled with 
memorabilia from that campaign. Uh, who knows? Napoleon probably had 20 of them. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they just, yeah, they probably built them for him, and he probably went, yeah, not that one. I don't like that one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, um, yeah, because um, I, I was watching a documentary about the Regency period before he became King George IV, and uh, he want, when he became the king, he wanted to be part of the war, and he wanted to show that he's as good as Napoleon, so he got the table, he acquired uh, it, and this was his way of st uh, trying to rise himself because he'd never, he, he, of course, he had never been to a war his whole life and never no. went later. He was not one of those heroic kings uh, no. at all. <laughs> um but I, 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 that's what, why it stuck in my mind because, you know, it, it was like, you know, a Beverly Hills person getting yeah. all this stuff from movies, but they're a dentist. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, no, well, Ken's, um, Ken's film, Henry V, explains a lot of that um, British gift-giving and lineage because most of the people, the men and the armies that fought with him in France at Agincourt were all, when you look back at England, they're all the names of all the counties. Mm -hmm. You know, Exeter, Leicester, you know, um, you know, Birmingham, all, they're all, they're, they were all just people who, after the war, came back and said, okay, this is yours. This is yours. You can have that, you know, because they'd fought. No, it's cheaper um, than paying them. Yeah, well, that's, you know, I guess that's <laughs> what they uh, couldn't do. Uh, and um, so they just gave them swathes of land, and I suppose it was all part of that terrible um, serfdom thing as well. You know, not only do you get the land, but you get four villages. Yeah, you know? yeah, and, and you have to support them. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. And um, they, they made hay and you sold it or wheat or barley or something and that's how you you took your taxes and you know um all that uh, funny old working class system so yeah i think it's interesting um so the other thing i noticed about that movie was it was a very busy film i mean people were going in and out i how did you get this shot? I mean, it, it 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 was like so many people were moving at the same time. Right. It was. It. I mean, I know the director knew what he was doing, and you knew what you were doing. But it, I, I was watching it, wondering how did you do it? <laughs> which 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 shot? You know where um, everybody's going in and out, and they're all mad at each other when Kenneth comes in drunk and. Uh, Stephen Frears is telling later on after yes. uh, you know and, and uh, that he's got HIV and yes. and um, there the um, Hugh Laurie and Amanda Stant yes. Stoughton Stoughton yeah. thank you I, I, I'm sorry <laughs> uh, are uh, talking about how they've gotten over uh, they haven't gotten lost, over yes. but they've they've accepted what happened to their baby yes. and all that stuff I mean but people are going in and out of the shot I mean they're walking all over the yes. place during that period how do you capture that 
it's such a it, busy it, thing. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. We, you know, it's a, it was a considerably low-budget film with a very tight filming schedule. I think we only had 22 days to do it, and uh, Ken liked the re- likes the rehearsal period. So, um, you know, we would rehearse, rehearse, and things would just sort of naturally fall into place. So, you know, he comes through that door and sits there, and then that person crosses, and oh, then that go. They've got some words, and they go over there. So uh, things can naturally fall into place to be work themselves out as one shot. So you can have the environment where during the rehearsal period it becomes obvious that it works as one shot. So you start rehearsing it as one shot. And um, there's quite a few in, in Peter's Friends and one of them is the opening sequence is all one shot, three, three and a half minutes long. Uh, when, when they're singing they and everything? Yeah, yeah, when they're singing the underground song and then the camera follows them. You see all the drunk old people at the table, and then you follow all the the young friends from university into the kitchen, and they're all mad at each other, and it didn't work out, and they only got paid 500 bucks, and that's all one shot. Mm-hmm. And um, Ken, uh, not deliberately, but really likes to push his actors. So people like Stephen Fry, uh, didn't want to dance in that number. He he hated having to dance. He wanted to try and work out how he didn't have to dance <laughs> and sing and mime all at the same time. So there's that one, and there's another one where they um, they do the way you look tonight, mm-hmm. which I think is a fantastic sequence around the piano. Yeah, and the the sort of odd guy out, uh, you know, who's a bit drunk. Tony is there. Uh, with uh, the Amelda, the uh, the black actress, and she's, she's really good. Yeah, the boyfriend. Yeah, 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 yeah the boyfriend. And uh, and we, so Hugh and Amelda start playing on the piano. The camera pulls back, goes past the Christmas tree, and then finds the others sitting on the lounge. And then the others get up and go back to the piano. And then the camera comes back and finds Tony, who says, oh, can you do the coffee jingle? Because that's the only thing he remembers. And that was all one shot. But what we did was we put the Christmas tree itself on a, like a movable dolly, like a Lazy Susan. So we could, we could push the tree in one direction or the other. So when you're, the camera passes past the tree, we needed to get the tree out of the way because the base of it was so big. So it, it, the tree itself is physically moving to the right while the camera's going left, but you don't notice the tree is being moved because the camera's moving. So there's a few tricks like that that you have to employ to achieve uh, you know, a one-shot result. Because it's so different so, from Belfast. The movie Belfast. You did that one too, right? No, no, I did not do. Oh, Belfast, I thought. No. Oh, I thought you did Belfast too. Because uh, he's so his style's changed, I guess. Yes, yes. No, I think he. Uh, that's more conventional. Um, you know, sit down, two people talking, close-ups type thing. 
Yeah. Um, it didn't. It didn't need the energy that that Peter's friends had. I think it's. It was more toned down and subtle. So, and you know, he doesn't like to make the same thing over and over. So, yeah, you know, I think I thought Belfast was a great film. It is a great film. It is a great yeah. film. It deserved all the kudos it got. Definitely. Yes. Uh, I don't know. I'm sorry. I re- I got confused. I I did my research and I messed up. So I do apologize. <laughs> no, not at all. No, no, no. <laughs> um, but yeah, I was I because I had just recently saw Belfast and I was just like it, it, and then just today. I mean, last night I was watching Peter's Friends again and I just got God, so different in yeah. style. I did a black and white comedy with uh, with Ken, and it had uh, Joan Collins in it. Oh. Yeah. And uh, did they changed the title in America. Uh, it, was in, it was originally called In the Bleak Midwinter, and I think they changed it to A Midwinter's Tale in America because they didn't oh. like the word bleak in the title. I, I, I did see that, yes. And um, that was that was lots of fun. I really enjoyed that. That was a Ken a Ken original script, and uh, once again a, a short budget. I don't think I think I paid I got paid very very little, but had um, you know profit share participation, which is quite common, where you you know you get paid five hundred bucks like a nominal fee, but if if the film goes into profit, you can share sharing those profits and um, a classic example is the Australian film uh, Crocodile Dundee the first one mm-hmm. they, they, they had profit share participation in that and uh, because they couldn't raise all the money through a studio so a lot of people provided their services for low money the cinematographer production designer uh, a lot of key key people, but of course it turned them into millionaires. Because it was a huge hit. <laughs> oh, well, it made, it made yeah, it was the the highest grossing independent film ever for ages, you know. And uh, but I, I didn't make that sort of money on on uh, Midwinter's Tale. It was uh, you know I sort of got my salary back basically. But uh, that was that was great. I do love working on comedies. That's my thing. I like I like uh, light-hearted stuff, but. Uh, but I also enjoyed the the heavy duty Shakespearean things I've done as well. So yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Shakespeare's always cool. Yes. <laughs> uh, we have something in common. Ah, what's that? We both worked with Betty White. Wow, fantastic! What happened? How did you How did you work with Betty White? I was in a Golden Girls episode um, called um, I always forget the name of it. Uh, Brother, Can You Spare a Jacket? That's the name of it. <laughs> and it was um, all about um, a Michael Jackson's jacket and a lottery ticket. And uh, what happened was they got a lottery ticket, which won. It was big winner. And Sophia put the ticket into the jacket. Uh-huh. And then gave the jacket and a bunch of other stuff to a charity uh, for the homeless. And 
when the girls found out that they she gave the ticket away, they all go to the auction to try to get the jacket before it gets sold, and then the, wow. and then it ends up at a homeless shelter. And I was one of the people in the homeless shelter. I played a homeless mother. Right. And it was it is actually one of the most loved and endearing episodes. Right. And um, so. Yeah, it was really cool because it was an unusual gig. Um, uh, I, I, I was an under five line player and I did extra yes. work. And this was called a specialty player because you yes. were like. Yeah, you're not just an extra. Yeah, exactly. You were in rehearsals and you, yes. you, it, it, you had almost, except for the read through, you're there for the whole time. Wow, it must have been fantastic. It was. I loved it. And I got to meet all the girls. And wow, I got to eh? be very good friends with all the people who were in the homeless shelter. And it was really fun. But I'll never forget Rue McCallaghan or Betty White. Two funny stories. Yeah. Do you want to hear them? Yeah, please do. Okay. I, oh, I'm an early person. I always get yep. to sets early. I just I got that from my inherited from my dad. I just always yes. do whether it's work, regular work work or acting yes. work work. Anyway, so I was there early and uh I went to the catering table and I was looking and I saw the bagels and I saw the locks but there was no cream cheese and I was kind of looking around the table trying yes. to figure out where the cream cheese is because you can't really have bagels and no, locks without cream right. cheese. And there was no butter either. There was no butter and there was no cream cheese. There was nothing to put on the bagel. Oh, nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, Rue comes over and she's uh, looking at me and she smiles. She says, hi. Yeah. And I say, hi, good morning. And she says, we're, and I'm not going to use the word she used. No. <laughs> she, she's, I'll, say, I'll just say uh, dot, dot, dot. Where yes. the dot 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 is the cream cheese? Yes. <laughs> and she didn't say it <laughs> quietly. And I said, I don't know, and there's not butter either. And she goes, How can we eat it? <laughs> and I mean, she made like I would yes. never have done it. I'm just a tiny extra. I'm not going to make a big fuss. She's the star. She can do that. Yes. But she wasn't. I mean, they were smiling. It was. It was. It, yes. It was. Possibly tongue-in-cheek. Did that send a lot of uh, people scuttling to get things? All of a sudden, four catering people came to the table with four different uh, dishes of um, (laughs) two different kinds of cream cheese and two different kinds of butter. And uh, she looked at me and said, you go first, honey. Yes. And that was the sweetest (laughs) thing. I mean, she's just the nicest lady. She didn't have to do that. And so, oh, as I'm scooping it, she's asking me questions. Um, you know, she's she's so interested in other people, and she uh, so she says, "And what do you do when you're not doing this?" And I go, "Well, I'm manager at Bullock's, a, a candy department." Yes. You are which candy department? And I said, "Blumps." Well, I'll come yes. and visit you. <laughs> Oh, really? <laughs> I, I don't remember her actually coming. We had a lot of famous people that came to that Blum's because it was one of the best candy stores. It's, uh, the store isn't there anymore. The candy company doesn't exist anymore, but it was a great place. 
Anyway, they let me have, my manager always let me have time up for gigs. Right. So, um, anyway, so we were talking, and I, I finished making my thing, and I go, well, I better go to uh, our little room. And she goes, yeah. okay, yeah, I have to go to my little room, too. And she made hers, and we both waved and went by, and that was my first day on the set. <laughs> and did you, did you have a scene with Betty? I had a scene uh, with all of them, everybody. Wow. They all four were in it. And the part with Betty was... Um, we're in a homeless shelter, and so everybody's on a bed. And I had a bag. I had, I I was a mother, so I had a child, and I had a bag, like a big white, uh, clear plastic bag. And so I had to get out of there from a different direction because that was set. That was part of you know that was set. That's where the camera goes. And yes. So during the break, the little. Uh, it was a little girl. She ran to the bathroom, and I went to Betty White. <laughs> yes. And I said, hi, Betty. I just wanted to let you know that you were a big influence on me in high school. You and Doris Day, and I started the Actors and Others for Animals Junior in my high school. And she stood up, and she said, you did, honey. Oh, that's great. <laughs> and she gave me the biggest bear hugging kiss on the cheek. It was the most lovely, and I'll never forget it. I mean, she just. Wow. I, that sounds fantastic. She was so cool. Um, now your turn. you got to tell me about Betty White. Oh, um, I did a film in California, in Temecula, mm -hmm. uh, which was written by uh, comedian Rita Rudner and her husband, uh, Martin Bergman. Mm -hmm. And in it, Rita plays... Uh, uh, a single mum who uh, uh, I think she gets I think she, she's, she's pregnant and going to have a child and is taking herself on a uh, self-imposed vacation to in the country and there's a scene where she's uh, flying to this destination and uh, gets sat next to a, a very mouthy um, a very a very mouthy broad who is played by Betty White <laughs> who is asking far too many questions about the pregnancy because um, I think I think the uh, reader's character was uh, had had uh, an artificial insemination process there was no real known father and of course there's a, the, the comedy came out of her Betty's character you know ordering too many um, little bottles of vodka and getting drunk and talking to her about how did you do it, what was it like, you know, <laughs> did you know the doctor who did it, was he a nice guy, you know, just too much chat. And, um, of course, you know, I am an Australian and I have, you know, an Australian accent and I had introduced myself at the beginning because most of Betty's work was just sitting down in a uh, an aeroplane you know a model you know you like have a set of an aeroplane and um, so she just sat there the whole time and I had introduced myself then when we moved had to move the aeroplane she had to get off so she was sitting in a chair that was provided and I went over and started talking to her and uh, she said something like you're not from around here are you <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I explained the journey of 
me, you know, an Australian ending up shooting a film in, uh, and uh, we, you know, she's very sweet and chatted, and I now have a lovely photo of Betty and I, me standing next to her. So it was uh, it was a great experience, and she was lots of fun, and um, you know, every she got clapped as she walked off set and everything like that because she's such an icon. Yeah. You know? Yeah. She's she. Oh my God, she's so talented, so diverse. Yeah. But um, you were telling me about this. This is a hell of a uh, movie. Uh, the ca- tell everybody the cast. Oh gosh, uh, there was the English comedian Dudley Moore. There was uh, Richard Lewis, um, Rita, and of course Jack Lemmon. And uh, one of my it, it now stands, even though it's a very hard to find film. It's almost lost in time. It was one of my greatest uh, moments in filmmaking was working with Jack Lemmon because yeah. I, just, I just loved everything he did and of course uh, you know all, all of the, the wonderful uh, work he did as a comedian and then some like it hot and he was he was like a um, you know, I almost didn't look at him when he used to come on set because he'd just go, there's Jack Lemmon, yeah. you know. And it's like, who? We were all staying in, you know, like, a golf resort in Temecula, but he was staying somewhere else. And he was driving himself to and fro. Um, the, in the cast also is an Australian Indigenous actor named uh, Ernie Dingo. And um, uh, so... Ernie couldn't come to the read-through. So get this. Martin, the producer, asked if I would read Ernie's parts at the read-through with all these actors because I had the, the Australian accent. Oh, wow. Which which is part of the gag, part of the running gag in the film. Uh, so I got to sit at a table and uh, with Jack Lemmon, just as you see in movies when they all sit around a long table with scripts in their hands. Uh, reading all the lines from the from the show, so I'm still even though I'm in the industry, I'm still a fanboy of all that stuff oh, and cool. having those great moments. Just as you with working with Betty, there I'm working with Betty, and then the next day I'm working with Jack Lemmon. You know, it's uh, it's wonderful and it's also fun. Oh yeah, you know, it's it's lighthearted working with comedians, as I'm sure you have in your in your acting experiences. Much, it's much more relaxed on set mm-hmm. than it is with uh, with high tension um, drama and of course one of the classics about Jack Lemmon was that you, you heard the, the, the legend or the myth that under his breath he says magic time yeah he talks about that that's so cool and, <laughs> and, and he does you'd be, you'd be at the camera and you'd hear him go magic time you know, after the clapperboard had gone, it was every time. You know, it was fantastic. So, and he laughed. He thought the script was funny, and uh, and being an Australian and in in a, a group largely made up of Americans, he um, he came to me and said, "Oh, you know, what part of Australia?" And I've never been, and you know, so I was very very chuffed being able to uh, have a conversation with the, these legends, but. Yeah, so that was my experience with uh, Betty White, and the film was called uh, Weekend in the Country, and um, it was light, light-hearted uh, comedy. There's a great scene 
in it with Richard Lewis and Jack Lemmon in a Volkswagen stuck the car the car they're in has broken down and there's very very funny the dialogue between uh, the two of them is really really great and uh, yeah and that was wonderful short short shoot but um, we were going to it was to be filmed in the Napa Valley but I think they're a bit more uh, film crew uh, savvy up there and they charge too much for location oh. places so we filmed it down um, in the other wine district down in Temecula and Dudley Moore, the English, famous English comic, he was in it, he was fun. And I've got wonderful home video footage of, um, I'm, you know, the crew are lighting a set, which might take 10 or 15 minutes. So we used a lot of big, sprawling uh, rural homes down there. You know, a lot of them are beautiful mansions owned by very nice, well-meaning people. They rent, we had to rent a couple to film in. And while we were lighting, so that's dressing lamps and pushing things around and people shouting, Dudley Moore sat down at the grand piano and started playing. Gosh. And, and he's, he's, he's a very well-known musician. Yeah. You know, he used, to, he used to tour as a piano player as well as a comic. But all of a sudden, everybody just sort of stops. And there he is. There's, there's Dudley Moore giving us... Ten, a little 10 minute piano recital on the piano you know it was really it was great fun and that's I guess that's part of the charm of being around show folk that they they're uh, you know one moment spontaneously humorous and then they just sit down at the piano and bang out a song you know and uh, a very uh, I find anyway light hearted and easy going but uh yeah, no, it's sort of a bit lost in time. I don't know where it is. I think the, 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 there used to be a cable company called Reicher, Reicher Entertainment or something. And uh, that's who the principal film company was. I think they might have got bought out by somebody else and then they got bought out by somebody else. Yeah. Film, films that, that weren't, you know, spectacular box office films sort of get a bit lost sometimes. So. Did Jack Lemmon play? Because he was a great piano player too. Oh, Jack. Yes, that's right. Jack. Um, yes, exactly right. I'm just trying to think. Yes, Jack did that too. But his he played a... We are in another location. Gosh, I forgot about that. Uh, he played an upright, you know, like a, a piano in the corner of a bar mm-hmm. type thing. Mm-hmm. And he did the same thing. And uh, somebody else... It, you know when you see... You think this is a golden moment... Mm-hmm. I'd heard somebody had had this moment with um, Paul McCartney from the Beatles, but this I'm just sitting there and same thing, gosh there's Jack Lemmon playing the piano, and one of the other guys, like a, as a joke which uh, sort of went over and gave him a tip, you know like gave him a couple of bucks you know, put, a, put it on the piano like he was the piano man, and I went, oh don't do that you know, don't do that. That's not funny. And it's it's Jack Lemmon playing the piano. And in the end, Jack gave me one of his CDs. Oh, yeah, he, you know, he Jack, wrote Jack, music too. Yes, you know, it's almost like a corny, um, you know, uh, the, the cover shots him in a, you know, holding his chin, looking up the camera and Jack Lemmon plays the hits or Ger- plays Gershwin or something. I'll have to find that. That must be in my... Uh, soundtracks pile 
Um, yeah. Oh, thanks for reminding me. Oh, so, you're welcome. Yeah, so that's, that's, how, that's how much fun you can have on a film is uh-huh. being, you know, off-camera entertained by, um, you know, great, great, uh, great artists, you know? Yeah. Yeah, you got you got two great pianists there, so yeah, that's that's cool. Um, I wanted to also uh, talk about Miss Fisher. Right, um, yeah. You got a lot of fans, so yeah. if I don't bring it up, I will get clobbered. So I have to bring it up. <laughs> it's in the contract. <laughs> it's in the contract. Um, I also rewatched Miss um, Fisher and the Crypt of Tears, and that's how we met. I went to the opening night at the Palm Springs uh, Film Festival, and I met you and Tony Tilts and Nathan Page. It was really cool. (laughs) Fantastic. Uh, Where where were we? Which was it at the screening, or was it at the hotel? We were well. I I met you and Tony at the hotel, and I met Nathan at the screening. Well, well, I might have photos. Remember, I I took loads of photos of us. I have a photo, I have a picture of us. <laughs> oh well, send it to me. Yeah, I had Will one you? of my friends take a picture of you and me, and I also have Will a picture of me and Tony and you and I don't know remember who else was in it, but yeah, yeah I had. Well, I mean, how often am I going to meet you guys? <laughs> I know. It was a great time, wasn't it? That whole festival. There's something about film festivals that's not just going to a movie isn't it you know there's a buzz yeah you're you're in a room full of like-minded people who are there for the same reason and um you know it's exciting and thrilling and um all for all those reasons yeah what was cool was is that my brother and i were seated next to people who were from palm springs and had no idea what miss fisher was right and they loved the movie right they were going along so and I they had and they they what um they had bought I guess they bought the tickets and they didn't know what the movie was which I thought no. was a little odd, yeah. um but uh, she she asked me uh, was holding the program and do you know the show and I go yeah it comes from a TV series it's an Australian TV series mm. and this is the movie from it and they and they said oh and is it a comedy and i said mm, comedy mystery <laughs> drama romance it's got all of yes. that stuff <clears throat> and they really enjoyed it but yeah it was kind of funny because it's a real it was a mix of residents and fans and film yes. people and all kinds of people so it was a really interesting mix at the actual screening yes it was the um yeah, the whole the two or three screenings that we went to all of them, you know, it was, um, and they were all packed out in the full house. And I guess that's the charm of that film is that, you know, you get it, you mm-hmm. know, without really knowing all the backstory, you know, you could sit down and watch the Crypt of Tears and, uh, and get it because it's not enormously complicated and... Um, the relationship and the love and the, you know all the um, some of the some of the characters sort of a little bit stereotypical but it the the plot moves it along in the fabulous locations you know so I can I can see how people would like it if they didn't know the TV series yeah yeah and it was really interesting because um, there were two things when I was rewatching it last night that struck me one was the church. And that must have all been you, Roger, because yes. that 
was one of the coolest sequences when she's walking through the church yes. with all the different lights and and shadows and it was oh how did you do that <laughs> can you tell well, us a secret uh, well <laughs> thank you for noticing because it's one of my favorite moments in the film because uh, it was explained to me you know particularly in Christianity and there's a church everywhere people and, and in the 30s so you're I don't know 10 or 15 year, years after the first world war in Europe and uh, Australia had a very big involvement in that that there are a lot of people down on their luck and a lot of people were turning to their faith and the churches were always open at night for people who just needed to sit somewhere quiet you know and and reflect on their their lot or their handicap or their loss or whatever so rather than a church where all the candles are on and it's daytime uh we we filmed uh at um at night and uh, we covered up some of the windows and we just had to make it atmospheric because in the plot she's meeting somebody who's uh, a, a World War One veteran who knows some secret information, so it had to feel creepy and spooky, mm -hmm. and um, which is not what you normally do with a church. <laughs> you know, it's usually stained glass windows and happiness and and all that. So uh, it was a challenge for me, and I used a couple of uh, older techniques that filming a film that's set in that era is. Um, you know, quite common, and the use of shadows and walking in and out of the light and everything. So it was, uh, it was great, wasn't it? It was really nice. And it's the same church we used in the whole of the TV series as well. Oh, and, um, okay. Yeah, but it was great. No, it was really atmospheric, and it's part of that uh, part of that church scenes in my show reel. You know where she comes and she sits down in the dark and then just turns her head to look back because she hears a noise. It's a it's a very you know very satisfying cinematography for me. It was great. The other one I have. Uh, this is another sequence in England, is where she's she's found Jack. She's talking to him through the window of his uh, rooming. Uh, That's right. Play, and her. It's the weirdest scene. <laughs> Sorry, I just like yes. but, uh, her face looks so weird through that yes. Yes. glass. Is it, it, how did that come about? I mean, it, is that, was that well, something that was supposed to well, say this is she's in a really weird position? Or <laughs> well, you have to remember, like this is how for me as a cinematographer and what I see in the work of other cinematographers is how it contributes to a scene. Right. So the the issue was I think it comes that scene comes after he has stormed off. Mhm. Mm yeah. After after he after he find, find you know spoiler alert but uh he finds out she is not dead and she's still bright and cheery and happy and uh he he, at the what he thought was going to be a funeral, uh, and she turns up at her own funeral, and he tears strips off her. So he, you know, he 
virtually says I never want to see you again and storms off. So we couldn't have them meet face to face. We decided that he should be lying in his bed and not letting her in because he doesn't want to see her. Right. He doesn't want to go on the adventure and, you know, to hell with you sort of thing. So she gets the idea of, um, you know, painting their picture. You should come. There'll be desert. be an adventure. Mm-hmm. There'll be men in cloaks and, you know, your help will be needed. And so which gave us the opportunity to do a... Uh, a we did a shot of her outside the door, but I loved what is essentially his point of view of her silhouette rather than him being able to see her he could see the cloche hat and the beautiful profile and the sparkle of her earring through the doorway so the cinematography was pitching that he could sort of see her you know it wasn't like he was um, it was this sort of masked silhouette version and it gave us the chance to just slowly, uh, you know, do the camera just slowly creeps in on him while he's telling her to go away. And, but then he starts thinking about it. Maybe I could. So it's a scene where you couldn't have them. It wouldn't have worked if they were sitting facing each other. They wanted to also see that he was in, you know, very uh, a low rent, poor DOS house, basically. And... Um, he was, you know, this extraordinary woman dressed up uh, telling him of an adventure. So that's another one of my favourite scenes as well and um, because of the, the, the darkness and the mystery and um, and there's some funny, you know, after each film there's always a, a, a goof reel or a gag reel of mistakes. There's some fantastic ones from that. Really? That cool. That, uh, that Essie, because Essie, you know, it's a long speech, you know, it's quite a long, a whole lot of words to remember. And of course, um, you know, she was dropping the F-bomb every now and again because she <laughs> couldn't get it completed and then we'd have to start again and then she'd do it again. And so um, in the middle of the high drama of it, there was a little bit of humour, but um, another another great scene uh, from it. Yeah, no, I thought it was, that's a... A well, another well-noticed one, Sherry, because it was uh, one of my favourites. Yay! And the the third one that I noticed, and it was in um, it was in Palestine. It was in. Yeah, so what did we have in Palestine? We had interior of the professor's room. That's it. We, the professor's. Uh, oh, when yeah, when she when she comes, comes down. Yes, and he's. Um, Yes, and there's all those double entendres, and um, she professes to have got a, a rip in a stocking. Yeah. It, it, it was just, like, yeah, she couldn't possibly use the interior. She had to come out from... <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, it, it was so funny. Um, and she's in this gorgeous evening gown that apparently yes. she hid under the blue... Um, um, yeah, Habibi. Can or whatever it is, yeah. Yeah, a Habibi, or I forgot what they call it. Um, but she was she was in the, the blue thing, and it was covering this gold thing. I guess she had her shoes and the other stuff right. inside her bag, because yes. later you find the blue stuff is now in the bag that she had thrown off. Yep. <laughs> um, 
yeah. but it's just it, it's just a really funny sequence. Was that fun? And was there any bloopers on that one? No, it was good. The actor playing the older professor is um, a very well-known Australian actor, and um, he was got all these lines word perfect. They they certainly. Uh, you know, Essie, when she's playing Franny, sort of like, likes to build up the the sexual tension, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. by always standing too close to the male character. And um, uh, so that we built that into it. You know, he she comes down, he sees her legs first, he works out who it is, she stands too close to him. And we had to work. The set was quite tiny for that build and um so we had to um keep that simplified and um of course uh palestine outside uh the window was a um you know a digital green screen element so most of it was played looking back into the room and then i think the police come don't they they turn up and arrest her and take her away so yeah that was great it was great and it was a great thing for me because if you've ever been to those countries and I'm sure it's the same in uh, you know really hot parts of America like New Mexico Texas or whatever you know it's it's dark inside and very sunny outside you know so it was great to be able to play with the light and the shadows in that scene as well and now this one is the process thing and I'm going to ask you a question and you may not be able to tell me but I'm curious mm. Where they're at the back in England, and they're at the professor's um, studio house, whatever. It right, is. Oh, the the warehouse. The warehouse where it has all those really cool. It has Bassett and it has all That's these right. different things. And the bad guy comes, and Jack and him have a fight, yes. and he runs out. Friday follows, and then he, they go through an alley, and then there's rain. And it's like yes. the rain dissolved him. What happened? Oh, well, <laughs> it's no, like he just... says, it's like he disappeared. I was like, the weird, <laughs> this the strangest. Oh, that's fantastic. I hadn't even thought of that. That um, the way, So the way we rehearsed it, rather than him just run off into the rain and then he's gone, you know, into the dark of night, uh, and her saying those lines, stop or I'll shoot, you know, who are you? Which was how it was scripted. He would have just run away. Because I I loved the rain effect because we had fire inside. So we had two elements working. The, the warehouse was on fire and it's pouring with rain outside and she's soaking wet. Rather than him just run off, I said, why doesn't he just stand there in the rain like he doesn't care and then he can just slowly walk backwards out of the street light and um and that's how we did it but i i hadn't actually got the metaphor for him dissolving in the rain that's very good it seemed to it i mean i may have an over imaginative mind (laughs) which i probably do but that's what it seemed to me it's like he just dissolved (laughs) yes no no well it's good i mean it was i guess that's it was just building the, you know, she. it gave her the opportunity to actually shoot him if she wanted to, but she didn't, you know, uh, and rather than him just run off, you know, which he, he did in the end, and then she runs after him and can't see him, and then 
they love that lovely line. Uh, she comes back in and Jack comes running in after her. And then the professor uh, <laughs> comes around just as they're about to kiss and says, I put the fire out. <laughs> and she says, yeah, yeah, thanks. You thanks sure did. <laughs> yeah, sure I did. <laughs> now, it's a, that's another great uh, lighting sequence for a cinematographer. You know, it was, um, uh, you know, we had a stuntman playing the the bad guy in case he slipped over in the rain. And it was a, it's a process to make an actress um, that covered in water. It's a bit of a process because you still got to look after the hair and the makeup and she's still got to look appropriate, you know. Mm-hmm. And so it was a cold night and there was a lot of rain around, but we, um, you, so you have to use, like with a watering can, you use warm water on the actor because then you can control it. You don't, you don't say, I'll just go and stand out in the rain. Uh, you, you apply the water on her very slowly so that as soon as it looks like she's soaking wet, then that's fine. But you don't, you don't want to, you don't want to accidentally brush off any false eyelashes or disturb the makeup or the costume. You don't want to turn it into a wet t-shirt thing. So you've got to apply the warm water to the actor and then they can run through the rain and it looks like they've been in the pouring cold rain but um you know it's all smokes and mirrors smoke and mirrors really but isn't it true that you have to like double the rain or otherwise it won't show yes yes you've got to you have you have to have it um you know variable so it's it's a simple process and a lot of it is just uh a rig that's like pipes with holes in it and you can have uh, heavy rain light rain whatever and it's depending on the pressure but the the principle one of the principal elements to see rain at night is lighting it from behind so it's backlit otherwise you won't see it you that know makes sense. and a lot of times one of those decisions when you're filming something uh, and it starts raining by accident, and a lot of productions will go, "Well, we can keep keep filming. I can't see the rain, you know." But of course, the clothes the actors are wearing are gets so. wet. They, <laughs> their hair gets wet. You you start seeing the effect of the water on the actors. You don't actually see the rain, but they they just start getting uh, wet. And then, of course, you got to change them. It's a big process. You can't you can't really film people in real rain. You know you've got to you've got to fake it up. You were the cinematographer on the series. Was there a big difference? I'm, I'm, I assume there is between doing a series and uh, doing a movie. Uh, usually, uh, yeah, usually there is. Um, the equipment didn't change and the the style of the show because you don't want to you don't want to change things too radically and uh so the equipment we used and the style of lighting i was applying pretty much stayed the same and in the in the television series you uh you work a lot quicker to achieve uh the elements because there's a lot of uh, plot and dialogue and things to say and they've got to discover stuff and you know there's um, there was also in the series there was if you remember the first series I think they dropped it by the third one was the 
the memory flashbacks of her sister being taken by the old pedophile. Yeah. So we had those flashbacks, which were sort of golden and in slow motion, but we also had the crime flashbacks at the reveal at the end of every episode. You know, it was the colonel in the in the library with the candlestick and the <laughs> knife. The, the knife was in the drawer, and your fingerprints were on the gun. So they their flashbacks, and we had to. Uh, so we had to treat the the memory flashbacks of you know when she'd look down an alley and see her and her sister skipping and dancing together. So they they were treated differently. One was in slow motion, and the other one was sort of in fast motion, but. We didn't have that element in the the feature film. I think it, I think it was just the the it was all just spoken about when they were down in the cave. You know who was who and who was up who and all that sort of stuff. So, but the series you work a lot faster, and so that usually means there's a little bit of a quality drop off. So you have to work faster. So the everything's a little bit um, broader and uh, the actors don't get chances to do take after take and um, you know you can't make the lighting or the cinematography um, succinct you know where you've got to make actors absolutely hit pinpoint accuracy marks on the ground so that when they look around they're just in the slit of light that sort of thing you don't have a lot of time for that in the television series but uh, it was certainly great fun and I think uh, a great opportunity for me uh, to work on a show that was that had those elements, you know, big handsome men in big broad brimmed hats and uh, women in fantastic designer gowns. Do you remember the one that was uh, on the ship, uh-huh. the American Hollywood uh, producer one, or you know, and the the actress who was in the polka dot dress? You know, it was fantastic. It was fantastic. You know, I really enjoyed the the. Hollywood movie one where the they get somebody gets stabbed on the movie set, you know, and uh, American producers in town and um, and that's a little bit of history as well because that's what happened here in Australia. All the cinemas were owned by independents and um, they were taken over by a, an American company because American films uh, were expanding. So that's what that episode was about. I think Deborah Cox, the writer, pulled a lot of the plot lines for each episode from historical events. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, the, the policeman strike of 1939, the, the return to a soldier's uh, issue, you know, being they're just like bums in the park because there was no there was no way they were being looked after after they, they'd fought for the country and things. And um, And I got to meet work with a lot of fantastic women directors who are now all working in the states oh wow shooting. yeah you see their names in the credits for uh, uh, space force oh. and um, oh uh, handmaid's tale oh really there's a, yeah there's a which is there's lots of Australian directors now female directors who worked on Friday working in America that's cool yeah, so that's always nice to see. Yeah, and uh, we need so, more female directors. Yeah, well, <laughs> I think that's I think that's the new the new way now. I mean, so, it's 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 a good thing. Yeah, no, it's absolutely fantastic. Did you know that 
there was uh, more female directors during the silent era than there has ever been since sound came on. Gee. There was uh, there was li- literally half the directors were women. And, oh, and people that were also actors would do several things like um, Mary Pickford and Lillian Gish and, and people yes. like that. They directed and they uh, they did their own stunts. And they did all kinds of stuff. I mean, the silent is sort of like the internet, you know, with uh, YouTube and stuff. Uh, right. They it it was like the wild west. Anything you could do, anything. Yes. Wow. And then when they when they did sound, they decided the men, sorry, yes. uh, <laughs> decided <laughs> that it was business and women can't handle that. And right. so they basically, very slowly, basically fired everybody, all the women, directors, writers, all of it. Gee. And and it's taken this long to start very slowly building our women's parts up again. Yeah. I I find it. Shocking. In fact, uh, the one that only director that made it into sound was Dorothy Arzner, and she was safe as long as oh, what's his name, the famous producer at MGM that worked under Louis B. Mayer that they have a name of an award for him. Oh yes, um, uh, not the Hirschholz Award. No, no um, the other one. That the uh, he ran ran the studio. Yeah, didn't he? yeah, yeah. And I don't I know, know why I blinked out on his name, but he's very uh, famous. He was. Yes. He, he was married. I think he was married to Norma Shearer. I, I I can even see his face, but I can't yes. think of his name. <laughs> it's, it's sad when you get to a certain yes, age. Yes, and it's like it's the award they give out at the Oscars. Yeah. That that isn't an Oscar. It's yeah. So and so, so and so award. Yeah. Right, and it's it's always for humanity and stuff. Anyway, yeah. he she was guaranteed her job until he died, and then as soon as he died, Louie Mayer fired her. But I can't remember his name. I mean, he was so innovative and ahead of his time. And well, we'll 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 come up with that before our conversation ends. But there was a lot of things really wrong with the. Um, the industry back then wasn't there you yeah. know, in that silent era. The exploitation. There's um, a fantastic book that I read when I was young about how the film industry came about, and it's called The Parades Gone By. I've never heard of that one. Yeah, write that down. The Parades Gone By. And it, it fills in the gap between acting on the stage and then the proliferation of movies and movie cameras and hand-wide cameras and actors acting in silent films and then making silent movies and how they really didn't give a toss. There's a very famous Western they made uh, where they had to recreate, you know, the, the push north into Canada and so they needed to, to film a, a, a line of people, you know, trudging along in a massive snowstorm to pitch, you know, to make the audience believe they're watching this move of progression into the, the frozen north. And uh, which they actually just took 
people out there. You know, like they hired bums and people that weren't working uh, in LA and took them up there and like gave them a sandwich and <laughs> set them up in the thing. And, and people died, you know, like people were actually dying and they were just burying them where they were. Jeez. Yes, it, it's, it's famous. I can't remember the film. And you t they talked to the guy who wrote the book, was a very famous uh, documentarian. Do you remember the series called Hollywood? Yeah. That was J James Mason narrated it? Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. I think uh, uh, Kevin Brownlow, I think his name was, I think he wrote this book. And oh. in the book he interviews those, he interviews a lot of the older silent filmmakers that were around, you know, not only actresses and, uh, you know, high-profile people, but they, he talks to gripsmen and cinematographers who worked in the silent era, and they, uh, you know, there's loads of stories of, you know, not being paid properly and, uh, you know, bad food and, you know, all those stories of, uh, you know, the, the famous image of everybody hovering around those gates of Paramount on... on um, Melrose, you know, that was because they didn't, they would only hire people on a, a daily scale. Mm -hmm. So, okay, we need you, you, and you. You can come in. You, you, and you, you can come in. And then you were fired and rehired the next day if you were needed. So I, I'm very fascinated by all that. That's fascinating. Uh, so that's during the silence. And that's all about the silent film era. And uh, huh. I didn't know that about women, but I'm not surprised knowing how. Uh, you know how harsh it was back then. Yeah, and I looked it up. Irving Irving Thalberg. Thank you. The Irving Thalberg Award goes to Steven Spielberg. Yeah, I yes. can hear it now. That's yeah. him. That's him. Thalberg. He was a Thalberg. very ahead of his time guy. He was the yes. one who came up with like doing um, uh, great books like Wuthering Heights and things ah. like that. You know. He he and David O. Selznick, really, if it wasn't for them, the two of them, MGM would not be as... Louis B. Mayer was great at finding actors and directors and writers and things like that. But for the stories, Thalberg and Selznick were really... Yes. They were the ones. But also, I think the other side of it, not the other side of it, but an interesting fact about it was I think Thalberg was really young. He was. Wasn't he? He was like 30 or something like that. And he ran Paramount or something. You know, it was like, it, it was unbelievable that, uh, you know, there was this, somebody who was so young. He was 24. Was he was 24 when they hired him as the chief uh, person at MGM. When um, he, he I, I don't, was it Paramount that he worked at before? I don't know. I but he worked at another studio, and he hired him away, giving him this bigger job. Yes. And it was like he knew that his life was going to be short because of his – he had a – I think he had a something wrong with his heart or something. I don't remember right. what yes. it was. So he was like day and night, even though he was a happily married man, he loved his wife, he uh, he worked his butt off constantly yeah. so he kind of shortened his life because yes. of all the work he did but he was brilliant and he he protected this uh female director you're saying yeah dorothy arsner yeah yeah um 
She did uh, Garbo. She did um, Cap- Catherine Hepburn. Great. She, she worked with some of the greats. Um, you know, because she's a woman, sort of like George Cooker, she was a woman's director. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I just find it all fascinating. I mean, yes, and that uh, book sounds really interesting. I, I wrote it yeah. down. I got to get that. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's quite a big thing, but it's, they've got fantastic. It's got fantastic photos, and it's it's sort of uh, chaptered, you know. So it's the directors, the actors, you know, mm-hmm. those sorts of. So you can just pick it up and just read one section about somebody that was connected to it. But it's fascinating, you know. I mean, they used to, you know, they're like people go, well, where did stuntmen come from in films? You know, well, they were like uh, circus guys. You know, they were sort of the strong man in the circus. That's how they transitioned into doing stunts. So the fascinating things like that. It was uh, and pretty much in the day, the cinematographers were very, very important because of, uh, you know, the, the magic and the voodoo connected to the, the brown box with a handle on it, you know. And uh, it talks about Chaplin and it talks about, uh, you know, uh, all, all the famous uh, film producers and directors from that era and how they achieved the greatness plus all the, the you know, the tragedy and gossip that went on in that era, you know. And there's a lot. And there's a lot. Um, I think it's really cool. Um, yeah. I want to, you know, let you know that you are very popular with the fans of Miss Fisher because they all love oh, you from great. the TV series. They love you from the movie. So uh-huh. I, I don't know if you felt it when you met them, but, yeah, you're very well loved. <laughs> oh, it was great. It was great. Having done, you know, some substantial work before uh, the Miss Fisher series, it was great to then enter that world uh, with all the, the fan base because you forget that there are a lot of people who can hook into these things, you know, like um, uh, that previous story you were telling me where you ran into somebody who was enamored with you because you'd beat in the Golden Girls, mm-hmm. you know, uh, to find people that are, you know, such a great bunch of people that are such fans of one particular thing was... Uh, was fantastic and it was wonderful and eye-opening to me because I don't know uh, any other show or Australian production that has that level of uh, a fan base. Isn't that interesting? Hard to to explain to other Australian cinematographers. You know, I'm glad I've got all the photos and the footage I took from Palm Springs because, you know... You, you, you say, hey, they're not queuing around the corner for that Doctor Show you film, you know. They're not they're not queuing around the block because of that Police Show you film, you know, talking to other cinematographers. So this is me. They're here because they love this show, you mm-hmm. know. So um, the only other think, show that probably has that kind of a thing is um, Lucy Lawless's My Life Is Murder, but that's because Lucy's so loved from Zena. Yes, that's that, right. That that's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he can't. yeah, no, she's great. That was uh, that was that was it filmed in Australia or New Zealand? It was the first 
season was filmed in Australia, and then oh, right, Lucy yeah, went yeah. home to New Zealand, and she couldn't go back to Australia because everything was shut down, and they wanted That's to start right. shooting again. So she did the second season in New Zealand, and they're shooting again, and I think it's going to be the third season. Going to be, I think it's back to uh, st- staying in New Zealand. Right. But it started yeah. in Australia. Yes, that's right. I do remember now because those new people that worked on it. I love that show. Yeah, and that's fun too. That's yeah. a premise, you know. But that's the only thing I can kind of compare it to. But she was famous before. That's right, yes. You know, and all these people. I mean, Essie was known. Yep. But I don't know. Because she's such a chameleon yep. that... I I didn't even know I had seen her in two movies until I started looking up her background after I fell in love with Miss Fisher and I realized, oh, I saw her in The Girl with Pro. Oh, I saw her in Me uh, Clearly. I didn't right. realize it was the same person. Yes. <laughs> yes. No, she's um. Yeah. No, she's good. I mean, she. I think she's really is uh, blonde. Yeah. Uh, or a, or a. You know, I the first time I worked with her a long time ago. Um, yeah, she was. She played a, a blonde, and uh, so I, that's sort of what's the joke I make? I said I've, I've filmed Essie giving birth. I've filmed her dying. You know, I've filmed her flying an aeroplane. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been in, um, been there. Well, there's been some key acting moments, but um, it's uh, yeah. So no, it was. Uh, did you see Babadook? No, not yet. Yeah. That's it's pretty simple, you know. It's only like a what they call a two-hander, really. It's just her and a son in a creepy house. But uh, and then there was the Kelly Gang. Did you see that? that? I Which saw. Was, I saw that was really good. That was pretty radical filmmaking yeah. there from my husband. And um, I think she's been doing a bit of theatre. But like a lot of them, you know, they're sort of because uh, of the the whole COVID the COVID years. It's all sort of changed, hasn't it? The perspective on on um, acting and theatre and the stop-start, whole stop-start thing, you know. Yeah, I think so. I think, well, I it's not just that. I think everybody's changed. This whole thing has changed everybody, you know. Yes. Being a, basically two years shut down off and on, uh, it changes your perspective on life. Yeah. So I, that I I I know it affected you know especially theater, um, but and, and film, film seemed to get back faster than theater because theater you're in an audience. Yes. But I I I think that everybody's changed. Mm. I don't know for the good or bad, but everybody's changed. Well, <laughs> it's certainly a my. Uh, wife is a makeup artist and she's still working, but they still all have to wear masks. They all have to, they do their own uh, nasal test in the morning before they go in. They then ha- they have to photograph it, uh, put it, write a date on it and a time on it and send it in to the production uh, to just make sure that they're not coming to work with COVID. Yeah. You know, so and she doesn't think that'll ever change because... They're very, uh, you know, almost nose to nose close contact with all these actors. So they, um, you know, they, they, and you don't want the actors to get it because then the whole show stops, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, so, it's, and everybody's in little groups. Yeah. It's like the little, the little bubble group. That's right. 
Anyway, um, I yeah. want to. We're, we're getting to the end, so I want. Yes. I, I wanted to thank you for taking time out of your day. Um, oh, it's a pleasure to chat with me. Um, it was really fun. Uh, you're you're so interesting. I could talk to you for another two hours. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's been great, and it's um, certainly find the uh, all the, all the wonderful fans from the uh, Fisher series and. Um, uh, you know, people who know my other works, it's very flattering to know that, um, you know, the films are still out there. Like, had had the streaming services not come along, you know, a lot of the earlier work I'd done would probably be gone. But if I do search it, you go, oh, look, there's one, there's one, there's one. So they're, they're all out there, and you can now recommend these things for people to see. So it's a, it's always a pleasure talking talking about your, your own work and the the fun environments and the people you meet you know yeah great yeah great pleasure thank you I, I i thought it was really fun and i really appreciate your time that's no no trouble thank you very much sherry and um hope everybody enjoys listening to the show thank you and thank you for chatting with sherry <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.